This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. How do we know which of our successes and failures can be attributed to either skill or luck? That is the question that investment strategist Michael J. Movison explores in his book, The Success Equation, Untangling Skill and Luck in Business, Sports, and Investing. Wharton Management Professor Adam Grant recently sat down with Movison to talk about the paradox of skill, the conditions for luck, and how to mitigate against overconfidence. Michael, we're delighted to have you here today to talk about your book, The Success Equation. Totally fascinating. Welcome. Thanks, Adam. Great to be here. I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about this paradox of skill that you've discovered, sort of getting us to rethink the relationship between luck and skill. Yeah. Well, let me first tell you what the paradox of skill define it specifically. And it just basically says in activities where there is skill and luck that defines outcomes, as skill improves, luck becomes more important in determining outcomes. So that means more skill means more luck, which seems very paradoxical. I've, I Actually, it's not my idea. I learned about it from Stephen Jay Gould, a very eminent biologist at Harvard, and he talked about it in the context of Ted Williams, the last player to hit over 400 in Major League Baseball, which he did in 1941. And Gould was sort of wondering, like, why has no one been able to achieve over 400 since that time? And he, and he looked at things like, you know, maybe because the guys play at night or they travel too much. Really, none of those things checked out. And then he said, maybe Maybe Williams is just this amazing player, you know, sort of uh, immortal among mortals. And he said, you know, but if you look at every other sport, for example, things measured against the clock, there's been absolute performance everywhere you look. So that doesn't seem to be the case. And then he sort of thought about it more carefully and he realized the actual result is because everyone's gotten better. And as a result, the standard deviation of skill has actually narrowed, right? So if you think about batting average for your season, you're a player, it's some, some level of skill plus some level of luck gives you your outcome. What's happened generally is the standard deviation of skill has gone down. Why? Because you're recruiting players from, from the world now versus just parts of the United States. You're, you're uh, training better. You're, you're, you're coaching better, all those kinds of things. So it turns out, just to be statistical for a second, the standard deviation of batting average in 1941 was about 0.32. They said, no, it's 0.032, pardon me, and now it's 0.28. So saying this differently, Ted Williams was a four-standard deviation event in 1941. If you were to be a four-standard deviation event in 2011, that would, you'd hit 380, which is still awesome, right? But at below 400. So the point is this paradox of skill we've seen, the, the differential skill narrowing, we see really all over the place. We see it in the world of investing. We see it in the world of business. Uh, so I think it is very interesting. As skill improves, especially in competitive markets, luck becomes more, more important in determining outcomes. It's incredibly interesting and, and much the opposite of what most of us want to believe. <laughs> Definitely. So what do you do about this if you're taking this knowledge as a business professional or a leader? Well, the main couple things are, are, are possible. One is to think about finding fields where there's differential skill, right? So if you, if you see something that's very highly competitive, you really have to have something completely different to get you on the right side of the tail of the, tail, the, the skill distribution. So that's probably the easiest thing is to think about things where there is differential skill or try to attack – a, a more skillful player using an unusual tactic, for example. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. 
And how do you explain, obviously there's some outliers that, that sort of don't fit this picture. I, I think of Miguel Cabrera winning the Triple Crown, mm -hmm. of course, this past year. Um, is, is that luck, or is there a way still to cultivate skill, even though you're dependent on luck more than before? Yeah, and in athletics, this is a great example. So one of the points I would make, which I think is pretty common sense once I say it, is that whenever you see an outlier in uh, sports, it's almost always, or it is always, a combination of really good skill and really good luck. And, and one of the best ways we can measure that, for example, is through streaks. So, for example, Joe DiMaggio had this 56-game hitting streak. But if you look at all the players in Major League Baseball history who've had 30 or more hitting, streak, um, hitting streaks, their career batting average is over 300. So they're about one and a half or two standard deviations away from the average. So saying it differently, not all skillful, player have, skillful players have streaks. But all streaks are held by skillful players. So, so I think you can almost be assured that whenever you see really, really good results, um, it's skill and luck combined. By the way, you almost never see it on the other side, right, which is like really bad luck and really bad skill because those people either metaphorically or literally kind of die off, right, in the population. So, so we mostly see the outliers on the, on the positive side versus the negative side. We don't see the failure so much. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that raises the question for me, are there ways that you can improve your luck? Yeah, well, maybe I should step back and define luck because I think that it's actually a fascinating topic. And, and when you think about luck or read about it, it really spills into philosophy, like moral philosophy, very rapidly. So, and, and by the way, there, as you know, there are tons of aphorisms about luck, right? You know, luck is where success meets preparation and you, know, you make your own luck. But the way I'm going to define it, actually, those aphorisms, while they have a, an important sentiment, aren't actually not accurate. So I'm going to define luck. I'll, I'll say luck exists when three conditions are in place. Number one is it happens to an individual or organization. So it could be you or your team or your company. Second is it can be good or bad. And I, I don't mean to say that it's symmetrical. So it could be, you know, they could be asymmetrical. But, but there's a positive sign and a negative sign. And the third, and I think a really essential one, is uh, it's reasonable to expect a different outcome could have occurred. It's reasonable to expect a different outcome could occur. So when those three things are in place, I think there is luck. Now, by my definition, another simpler way to think about it is kind of what's in your control versus what's out of your control. And luck would be sort of what's out of your control. So when you hear people say like, well, you know, you make your own luck, what they're encouraging you to do is work harder or be persistent or be gritty. And those are all really important things. But if that's within your control, in a sense, I'd put that into the skill bucket. So how do you, how do you manage luck, right? And a couple ideas I'll share. One is there's a really simple heuristic uh, that when you are the favorite, the stronger player, you have positive asymmetric resources, you want to simplify the game. When you're the underdog, you want to complicate the game. So that would be one example. And of course, the canonical example is David versus Goliath. And by the way, it's a, which is a really a wonderful story if you read the whole story. But you know, interesting, sort of David comes up and he's delivering stuff to his brothers and he's sort of like, there's this ruckus going on. They go, what's going on? This is guy Goliath, he's a 6'5 dude, you know, 130 pounds of armor, sort of threatening everybody. And so, so David says, yeah, I can take this guy on. And, and originally they, they put him in armor. He's going to go in and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Goliath. He's this little skinny shepherd boy. And, and David gets this quickly, he's like, this ain't going to work. So, so he immediately takes off all the armor, of course, his famous slingshot and takes five stones from the creek and then he goes out and uses his own technique. So in business, that would be, for example, disruptive innovation. So rather than going straight at the leader, you kind of come out with a flank strategy. In, in warfare, it would be guerrilla strategies versus, again, toe-to-toe. -to -toe. In, in football, it might be trick plays versus, you know, running straight down the middle and trying to do it. So, so that would be one way, for example, uh, that would be a classic way to and, – and, and you say it's common sense when you say it, but it's remarkable in business, in sports, and even in military, 
how, how, how underutilized that strategy is. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it, it raises sort of another interesting question, which is you're familiar with the, the really robust evidence for overconfidence um, <laughs> that, you know, if you take any sort of standard study, David Dunning and his colleagues, I think, have, have done some of the most interesting ones. People assume about 90 percent of, of any people you would ask would assume they're above average on any given <laughs> exactly. attribute, you know, intelligence, <clears throat> scale, et cetera. And so, you know, what you're saying basically requires people to assess whether they're a favorite or an underdog. We know people are biased toward thinking that they're favorites. So how do you temper that level of overconfidence to, to make good judgments about how to change the rules of a game? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting one. I mean, p part of this is, I, I, one of the frameworks I like on this is going back to sort of, uh, the, I think, the Danny Kahneman, uh, Kahneman, really Tversky idea of inside versus outside view, right? So you're very familiar with this. But, you know, the outside views, well, the inside view says when we're trying to solve a problem or tackle something, the typical way that we do it, and this is where I think overconfidence plays into this, is we um, we kind of uh, you know gather lots of information about the situation, we combine it with our own inputs, and then we project into the future, right? So sort of almost I would say idiosyncratic might be strong, but it's, it's sort of your own point of view. The outside view, by contrast, says I'm going to look at that problem as an instance of a larger reference class. So I'm going to ask what happened when other people were in this situation before, and I think that's one of the ways to sort of temper. Uh, temper that overconfidence to say, rather than looking at this sort of my own unique situation where I think I'm above average, I'm going to look at what's happened to everybody else that's tried this before. Now, I actually am ambivalent about this argument on one level, right? Because if you're an entrepreneur, like we want entrepreneurs, but we know that a high percentage of them are going to fail, right? But we know that some small percent are going to, are, are going to succeed and create enormous amount of value for, you know, for society and so forth. So, so you want the entrepreneurs to get out of bed in the morning and go like, I'm going to go take the mountain, right? But if you step back and said, oh, statistically, right, that's probably not a great so, – so I'm a little bit ambivalent about the argument. But that would be one of the ways, I think, to try to temper that. The other thing I'll mention quickly on this is I, – I, and I think there's a really interesting literature of this. Uh, you know, it's called undersampling failure, right, which is people – a company or, or a team will pursue a particular strategy and they'll succeed wildly. An, another team or company will pursue a very similar strategy and fail. But, of course, the failures go away. And so what happens is you, you walk along, go, okay, what strategy works? And you see that strategy and you see success. And so you say, uh, that's got to be great. You undersample failure. So that's another way to sort of temper some of the thinking is to say, I want to understand really the, the entirety of what's happened with this strategy, for example. So that, that might be some ideas about how to, how to mitigate the overconfidence. Yeah, I, I think that's very helpful. And it actually connects to one of your other really interesting points in the book, which is about using better statistics. Can you talk to us a little bit about, about how you would do that as a business leader? Yeah. So, you know, we're awash in statistics, right? You watch a ball game or you read the, the business page of a newspaper or what have you. And, the, and, and we know that they're not all created equally, right? So w what makes for a useful statistic? And what I basically argue for, well, you actually got this from the sabermetrics guys, the sports statistics guys, is you really want two things. One is you want persistence and the second is you want predictive value. So persistence simply m means that the, the actual statistic is correlated from one period to the next. So for instance, um, if I know your batting average for 2012, it would correlate highly with your batting average in 2013, or, or how well it would correlate would be a measure of persistence. The second thing is predictive value. So you want that statistic to, to actually correlate highly with the objective you're trying to achieve. So for example, in baseball on offense, you're trying to generate runs. So the question is, how well does batting average correlate with run production? Let me, and let me tie this back to Moneyball, right? I mean, this is, there are a lot of different themes in Moneyball, but one of them was a simple one, which is on-base percentage is a better measure of performance than batting average. Right. And what they found was on-base percentage 
has a higher correlation from one season to the next, which means it's more indicative of skill than batting average does. So it's, it's going to it passes the persistence test. And then secondly, on-base percentage actually correlates higher with run production than does batting average. So that's going to say that is a superior statistic because it's more persistent and it's more predictive. And I should, I should have backed up and said high persistence is almost always indicative of high skill. Low persistence, typically lots of luck. So let, let's take sort of a, maybe an exception to that rule, which is when you think about the interdependence of different players on a baseball team, or for example, in a company too, um, you could assume that, you know, given on-base percentage is attributable to skill, but then you end up batting right after another highly talented batter, and that's going to increase, in general, your on-base percentage, right? Yeah. So how do you decouple sort of the, the individual scale from the context in which you find yourself? <laughs> Super difficult, right? Super difficult. So part of what I – when I did the work on on-base percentage, I actually did – I st- uh, to try to sidestep the problem you just articulated, I did it on a team level versus an individual level. I think that, of course, they're going to roll up on some level, but but you're right. And so – it's it, it, it's it, I think it's a major step in the right direction, but in some ways it can be a fairly blunt instrument. So I think the really careful statistical people try to understand exactly if you're batting in a different order, what have you, what impact will that have, and try to measure that out and, and try to extract that effect. But this also leads to another point that's more more broad, which is, for example, to take sports, which is very simple. You know, tennis is one on one, and we have a large sample. If we play a five set match, there's a large sample size, right? So we pretty much know by the end of the tennis match, tennis match, who which of us has been more skillful. But as you said, like you get into a football game or or football, you're, you know, uh, football for us the world, right? Soccer. There are a lot of players, a lot of interaction, and identifying those effects of individuals is a vastly more challenging task. Now, again, it doesn't mean you shouldn't try or, or, or try to gain some insight into doing that, but you're right. that The degree of difficulty goes up as you add complexity. And, of course, corporations, same thing. There's a lot of moving parts, very difficult to, often to say this, that, or the other cause one thing or another. So you mentioned Danny Kahneman's work earlier, and he's added another really interesting variable to the equation, which is, are you working in an environment that's stable and predictable or much more turbulent? And he's made the point that you can rely on your scale and your expertise and your intuition much more in a predictable environment. Um, But most of us don't have the luxury anymore of working in these very predictable environments. So how do you think about navigating a more uncertain world? Yeah, this is such a fascinating topic. I wrote a chapter about this in my prior book, and I called it The Expert Squeeze. And I basically said the main way to think about expertise is to think about precisely that continuum you just laid out. So it's interesting in, in some fields, there are, uh, things are the environment's stable. I, I like to often say it's stable and linear, linear, so cause and effect are very clear. In those realms, you can train your system one, what Danny calls, so you can train your sort of subconscious to be really good. The challenge is increasingly, especially in a business setting, is that computers are taking on those tasks professional tasks and can do them very efficiently and cheaply. So experts are good at those, but increasingly there's an encroachment from technology. That's the, and, and that's been a very – that's a challenging uh, situation. The opposite extreme, as you point out, are, are environments that are unstable and nonlinear. And there we know that experts are very poor predictors, and there's really no way to train your system one, your subconscious. And so I always love to make this distinction, especially I'm in the finance business, the big deal, between experience and expertise. And people often think that experience and expertise sort of equal each other, and that's true on the stable side of the continuum. But when you're on the unstable, nonlinear side of the continuum, your experience really doesn't and, and the key to experience, uh, expertise, pardon me, is having a predictive model that works. And you don't really have a predictive model that works. So there we know that experts do very, very poorly in their predic- predictions. And by the way, you know, this is early 2013. This is the time of year everybody's making predictions about what's going to happen. 
And of course, most people who keep track of those things know that they're, they're notoriously very poor. What's interesting though is that we're seeing in some cases called the wisdom of crowds, that collectives can be more effective than experts in making uh, judgments in those kinds of areas under certain conditions. So I call this the expert squeeze because experts are getting squeezed on this unstable, nonlinear side by wisdom of crowds properly harnessed, and they're getting squeezed on the other side by computers and, and technology, and there's less space in the middle for the experts to, to navigate than they used to have. So I think this is, this is the fundamental first question to ask is the problem I'm trying to think about where is it on that continuum from stable, linear to unstable, nonlinear? And that really dictates a lot about how you should think about solving it and, and by what means and techniques as well. Mm -hmm. So to build on that, um, it seems like unlearning is a big part of the equation there. Um, there's some work that uh, Nancy Rothbard here in Wharton uh, was involved in showing that people actually, when they move from one company to another, um, end up getting hurt by experience because they carry a lot of baggage with them about what worked in a particular context that's no longer relevant to their new context. Do you have any wisdom to share about how to unlearn some of those things? <laughs> no, I don't. But, you know, this is such a uh, – this is a – I mean, a big, obviously, this is a big uh, theme in all of social psychology, right, which is con the context of where you are is incredibly important in, in shaping the decisions that you make. So, right, you have a certain experience. You're socialized within an organization a certain way. And so those experiences and even imprintings, you know, so the kind of first kinds of experiences you have kind of deeply carry you through your, your decision-making for often the rest of your career. So I, I think it's a really hard thing to unlearn. But it's also, it can be at the same time very useful just to be mindful that while we love to think of ourselves as rational and objective and fact-based in our own decisions, is that that social context, be it new or old organization or whatever is going around you, is deeply influential in how you decide. And that, that inserts a lot of humility, but maybe raises awareness to help people get more effective at, at uh, making their decisions. Mm -hmm. So you, you work in the world of finance. How do you take all this knowledge and apply it to, to achieve success in your own job? Yeah. So there are a number of different angles on that. One is that I like to, I call it macro-aware, but macro-agnostic, which is to say spend as little time as possible predicting sort of big things in the world. You have to be aware of what's going on, obviously, and, and how those things may, in fact, uh, have an impact on various scenarios that might happen for a company or an economy. But try to be macro-aware, uh, macro-agnostic. Uh, the second thing is just thinking about what statistics are useful, for example, to apply that template to thinking about money managers. So, for example, hey, who, which money manager is likely to succeed in the future? And, and we know that past results are typically an, uh, an ineffective way to anticipate future results. But an isolation on process, a manager's process, might give us a better insight. So there are statistical ways that we can start to take a glimpse, get a glimpse at process. I think they can be very helpful. Another thing I'll mention is, you know, you mentioned overconfidence before. We talked about that. That's, that's also rife, obviously, in the investment business. And even as an analyst trying to anticipate a company's performance, one of the classic ways that that shows up is people project ranges of outcomes, for example, sales growth rates or profit levels, that are vastly too narrow. In other words, they're overconfident in their own ability to understand the future. So just getting people to, to widen out those ranges, to think more robustly about that can be very, very helpful. So there, there's almost no facet of finance where these ideas don't touch and can't help. Very hard to do day to day, but awareness and then again, tools and techniques to try to manage it, to, to minimize the mistakes, I think is, is, is of great value. 
So you managed to do all of this and keep up to date on the latest evidence that might inform these practices. How do you juggle these, these two things simultaneously? Yeah, part of it is I'm pretty bad at everything is the answer. So, no, I think a lot of it is just a, a natural curiosity. Um, also, one of the things that's been very helpful for me is teaching as an adjunct. So I'm not a real professor like you, you are, but uh, a heralded professor. But, but um, being an adjunct for me has been very helpful in, in part uh, the way I think about it is to try to take the very best of what academics bring to the table and the very best of practitioners. So, so what academics do, I think, that's very helpful is tend to be rigorous. Um, d d they're using the scientific method to understand and explore ideas. Um, but they're not always totally practical. So I think what the practitioners bring to it is, hey, you know, we have to make money and we have to have a practical angle on it. So, so taking the best of both of those worlds and trying to combine them, I think, is what's been, for me, the most uh, satisfying aspect of this. And again, if, if there's something you can draw from the world of academia that can improve your performance in some way, uh, that's great. And I'll say this, that it's interesting. I've been at Columbia. I'm about to start my 21st year teaching there. And when I started there, there was really no behavioral finance program. In fact, I often recommend the students take negotiation courses because that was the closest you got to sort of uh, tapping into some of these ideas from what we now call behavioral finance. That's obviously come a long way. And I think these are extraordinarily useful ideas. But shockingly, there are whole generations, including my own generation, of people who never learn this in the classroom. And unless you go out on your own, in effect, and learn these things now and try to put them into your process, you, you're, you sort of have a blind spot in a lot of your decision making. So that, that's also a fascinating thing. So a lot of people running corporations have never learned about these ideas and they have this blind spot. And, and, and trying, to, trying to fill that in a little bit, I think, has been a really, really fun activity. I think that's a wonderful call to action. And Michael, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, thanks. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.